Hello and welcome back to Let the Stone Speak. I'm Brent Nuktagal, your host for today's program. This is a podcast where we talk about biblical archaeology, biblical history, events on the ground here in Jerusalem related to the digging up of ancient things and their context in the Bible. And today I'm going to bring to you a discovery that was released to the public this past week relating to this time period uh, belonging to Jeremiah the prophet, the area of Jerusalem, right at the time of the destruction of the city in the early 6th century BCE, so about 2,600 years ago when Jeremiah the prophet, of course, he was an eyewitness to the events that took place back then. And we're going to read a couple of uh, passages in the book of Jeremiah and talk about this discovery uh, that was made in a collaborative effort, mainly by Tel Aviv University um, uh, scientists uh, related to two excavations there in the ancient city of David. One uh, in the Gavati parking lot dig, which is just on the kind of the western slopes uh, of the city, ancient city of David in the very northern section. And then another excavation in the eastern slopes of the city, ancient city of David. And both of these discoveries come from the same archaeological context. So we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians uh, around 586. And the Bible, of course, talks about this in numerous passages, uh, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles. Um, and so we have a great historical resource to document what happened. And then we have archaeological facts that are coming up, being exposed, being excavated to complete the picture and really to add uh, really amazing elements to the picture as well. Not just, you know, backing up the biblical text as being an accurate historical record, but bringing that text to life. Uh, in a way that you can touch and feel the discover the artifacts themselves that related to Jeremiah's time, <clears throat> and then give us some extra details that aren't in the Bible as well that are unincluded. Not everything is written in the Bible, of course. And this this discovery, specific discovery, I want to get to relates to the fact that now Jeremiah, uh, at the time that Jerusalem fell, we have proof that Jerusalem elites were imbibing on vanilla laced wine before the city's fall. Now, this discovery uh, was released in a scientific journal, Plus One. It was entitled Residue Analysis Evidence for Wine Enriched with Vanilla Consumed in Jerusalem on the Eve of the Babylonian Destruction in 586 BCE. And what it was, was taking vessels, these storage jars that as we'll get to, are thought to contain oil or grain sometimes, or or wine, um, and doing a residue analysis of what what was kind of on the inside of these, um, using some of these elaborate scientific processes that that can be done right now. And what they found was that these held wine as well of as all of olive oil, uh, some of them, <clears throat> and that there was there was. Uh, remnants of vanilla, or at least the the evidence of the presence of vanilla inside these wine vessels. Now, um, I'd just like to quote at this point from an article on on armstronginstitute.org. This was written by Christopher Eames on March 30th. So just as this news broke out, they released a press press release, and then they backed it up with this larger scientific journal piece. And we're going to get to the scientific journal piece, and I'll take you through some quotes, because there's some interesting details in there, that too, about the time of Jeremiah, uh, and specifically related to these storage jars. This is uh, how Chris writes, he says this, 
The study concentrated on the organic residue left behind on wine vessels discovered in a Babylonian destruction layer in the city of David. The identification of vanilla was particularly surprising because, as noted by the press release, this rather exotic substance, quote, until recently was not known, was not at all known to be available to the old world, or meaning this area up into Europe, uh, before the arrival of Christopher Columbus. But that's not true anymore. A couple of years ago, you might might remember from a Middle Bronze Age context, they found uh, up in this this northern city of Megiddo, uh, central to the north city of Megiddo, this city that's kind of on you know the crossroads of the ancient world. Um, they found vanilla there as well. There was vanilla that was put, I think, in a in a ritualistic context uh, in the burial of some people. <clears throat> from around 1700, I believe, uh, sometime in the Middle Bronze Age. And so we knew at that point, that was shocking, that what in the world is vanilla doing here in the ancient uh, Near East so early in time? Well, now they've found it in Jerusalem as well. At this point, I'd like to play you a video that was produced by the City of David Foundation. They sponsor some of these excavations, as well as uh, in conjunction, I think, with the Israeli Antiquities Authority, uh, the National Parks Authority, and then Tel Aviv University as well, describing this discovery in a short three minutes uh, from the archaeologists themselves and the scientists themselves. And after that, we're going to get into a little bit more detail, uh, taking putting the Bible together uh, with this discovery. So please enjoy the video. Jerusalem, the late Iron Age, the late uh, First Temple period, was a major local center not only administrative or religious, but also economy. Recent excavations here at the City of David National Park expose two large structures, most probably the houses of the elite of Jerusalem. One was exposed here at Givati excavation conducted by the Israeli Antiquities Authority and the Tel Aviv University, and the other at the eastern side of the hill at Beit Shalem conducted by the Israeli Antiquities Authority. I'm standing in the building that was found in Givati parking lot excavations. I'm standing in one of the rooms that was found covered by the debris of destruction by the Babylonians. And below the debris, we found the concentration of at least 15 store jars. This is probably the wine cellar of this building. You can still see some of the sherds glued here to the wall. The moment that we found these uh, store jars, we also found on two of the handles a stamp impression of a rosette that uh, tells us that these store jars were connected to the Judean administrative system close to the end of the First Temple period. These kind of jars are, are found usually in the destruction debris here and also at uh, Beit Shalem. These jars usually contain something like 30 liters of liquid and the assumption was always that they, it's either wine or olive oil, but we wanted to find a positive proof from the actual store jars, whether we can see what was actually stored in them. And we send them to the laboratory for the examinations of residue analysis. We are now in the restoration lab of Tel Aviv University. When I arrived at the excavation site and saw the ceramic shirts, I understood that this is a great opportunity to discover for the first time the content of these jars. I used residue analysis technique and I identified molecules that are characteristic to wine. The most exciting finding was vanillin. This molecule is originated from vanilla. That means that the wine in the jars was flavored with vanilla. The fact that there is wine in these jars is not a 
very surprising, but the fact that it's enriched with vanillin gold is very surprising. We know of vanillin being domesticated in the New World, places like Mexico, and then making its way to Europe. But now residue analysis research is telling us that cords of vanillin were collected in nature in Africa, in India. From there it made its way to the big urban centers like Jerusalem. This tells us a lot about the elite of Jerusalem and their wealth. Everything is being expressed by the archaeological excavations. The archaeological evidence will relate with the biblical text. Not only the evidence of our research conducted here, but also other evidence, such as the Ostrakon, written in uh, South Arabian uh, letters that were found by Igal Shiloh here in Jerusalem, or the recently found inscription found at Arabia mentioning the trade from Arabia here to Judea. The city of David, where it all began. So just a wonderful video that they put together. And if you didn't, if you're listening to this and you're not watching it on video, I definitely recommend uh, going to the video to watch this or even the show notes of today's program. If you clicked on a link and you're listening to it, uh, perhaps in SoundCloud or iTunes, <clears throat> there should be a link to this three minute video itself. So you can go and watch it there. So that was from the archaeologists themselves who conducted this study. And I just want to talk about now just a few of these extra details and kind of get into the actual scientific report. <clears throat> You'll please excuse my voice. I'm just overcoming something as well. Um, so this, this excavation, the Gavati lo parking lot excavation, this is in the news all the time. And there have been discoveries all the time uh, relating to this period. And it makes sense, right? If Jerusalem is going to be built up during the time of King David, and then continue in use and never really come across a major destruction until the time period of Jeremiah. Most of the discoveries are going to relate to the time period of Jeremiah. Just like if you were living in your great-great-great-great-grandmother's house, um, you are going to be, you're not, if, if your house was burnt down during your time, if somebody was coming to excavate that or go through the ruins, they're not going to find much from your great-great-great-great-grandmother's time. They're going to find things from your time, even though you're occupying a building that was built much earlier. And in this case, I think the, <coughs> at least in terms of the uh, Givati uh, parking lot excavation, or this excavation where a parking lot was and where a parking lot may be in the future, um, this is a, this destruction layer of this building from, I believe the late eighth century is when they believe it was constructed has been just unearthing amazing discoveries related to the Bible. You remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was the discover of the Nathan Malik inscription, Nathan Malik inscription. This is an individual that is mentioned in the Bible. They found a little bulla, a seal impression about a centimeter across with this man's name on it. And this is um, what, what, uh, where he's recorded in the Bible, 2 Kings 23. It says this, and this is during the time of King Josiah. Of course, Jeremiah the prophet started his work during the time of Josiah's time. Um, <clears throat> I think Josiah comes to reign around 640 BCE, and then Jeremiah starts about 13 or 14 years after that, around 627, just as a teen. Uh, and then the initial books of, uh, initial chapters of the book of Jeremiah are written in this early time during the time of Josiah. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 23, which is a, a, basically a parallel account to the book of Jeremiah, at least in this, in this uh, instance, at this time. It says this, 
2 Kings 11, uh, 23 verse 11. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son, that is King Josiah, at the entrance of the house of the Lord, the temple, by the chamber of Nathan Malach, the officer who was in, uh, who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of, sun, of the sun with fire. And so, again, this seal impression, it didn't say, you know, Nathan Malik, uh, officer who was in the court. That's kind of a, an anglicized version, uh, English translation of, of what his title was. But what it does say is belonging to Nathan Malik, servant of the king, Ebed Malik, servant of the king. And so you've got a direct parallel, even Yiftach Shalev, who you saw in that video there, the IAA Antiquities Authority excavator of Givati parking lot. Um, <clears throat> when we interviewed him, this is what he said. We got a name which is relatively rare, uh, uh, which is relatively rare, appears on a bulla and in the Bible. The date of the bulla, according to the epigraphy, which is the shape of the letters, is the second half of the 7th century, early 6th century which is the exact time that this person, the biblical Nathan Malik, was active here in Jerusalem. And the date of the, the context, the structure itself, is also dated to the, second, uh, to the second half of the 7th century, early 6th century. And so to him, he said it was likely that still impression belongs to the man in the Bible. Uh, you can't really get a better match uh, as far as archaeological con- context uh, and biblical name, title, uh, on a seal impression, which basically proves that this was, man was the man in the Bible. He has a very strange name. And so to find him in the Bible and then also on a seal impression is very important. So this is, this is again, providing some veracity, um, a corresponding archaeological find of a very individual that is mentioned right alongside Jeremiah, Josiah, and, these, and some other individuals in the Bible from this time period. So this is the same dig. This is the same place, the same destruction layer where this man from King Josiah, or at least his seal impression was found. They also found these broken, broken large jars, these storage vessels. Let's talk about the vanilla now from these vessels. This is quoting directly from the paper itself. The paper, again, is entitled Residue Analysis Evidence for Wine Enriched with Vanilla Consumed in Jerusalem on the Eve of the Babylonian Destruction in 586 BCE. And there'll be a link to this study in the show notes. You can read it yourself if you like. Quoting from them now. The large capacity of the jars and the presence of wine markers may indicate that the vanilla was used as a wine additive. Archaeological evidence for flavoring wine with exotic spices has recently begun to accumulate. <clears throat> and this is something that Chris, Chris brings out in his piece. I mean, in the Bible, the Song of Songs, you, you have spiced wine being mentioned. Um, you also have um, sweet wine mentioned in the book of Isaiah. And so there is obviously some type of additive process uh, that is going to the ancient wine to change the flavor a little bit as well. And and this is what they believe took place with this vanilla as well. <clears throat> Continuing the quote, it says this, mapping the possible sources of vanilla cords imply that they were imported from either India or East Africa. So that's the original source of the vanilla or vanillin. Both areas were, or vanilla, both areas were con- connected to the Levant or this area of Israel, Lebanon, by the desert roads which originate, originate either in South Arabia or Egypt. Archaeological and textual evidence show that the Southern Arabian trade network flourished throughout the 7th century BCE, 
first under the Assyrian Empire and, and later under their successors. The main Arabian trade route of the northwest passed in the Beersheba Valley in the territory of Judah, and the kingdom probably provided shelters and supplies for the convoys. Finding Vanillin in Jerusalem is an indication that the city was one of the destination destinations, it should read, of some of the elite products which were transported from Arabia. <clears throat> this is supported by earlier finds, such as three inscribed in sherd, uh, inscribed sherds, or ostraca, written in South Arabian script found in the city of David, Jerusalem excavations. And so they reference an earlier find that took place uh, in the city of David under the excavations of Dr. Yigal Shalow. I think these, uh, specifically these ostraca with Arabian names on them, actually, uh, that were inscribed on local vessels, as I'll get to in a second, uh, they came. They were excavated in 1979 or 1980. If you've been to the city of David, you know this area of Area G, um, which is where a lot of the the discoveries from the time period of Jerusalem's fall came from, in the in the 80s and 78, I believe, or 79 is when the excavations began. And of course, Yigal Shalow, the excavator there, you might recall, he died prematurely. <clears throat> Uh, quite young. And the very last, um, in the final week, actually, or the final work before he died, very close to his death, he put out this paper or this um, this article. This was in Eretz Israel <clears throat> from 1987. It's entitled South Arabian Inscriptions of the Early Iron Age II from Jerusalem. He describes it this way. Three inscriptions in South Arabian script incised on potsherds were found in the city of David. Two of them were found in the destruction layer of level 10, 586 BCE. So these, um, this is evidence, obviously, that you had some type of transit of either people or stuff <clears throat> from South Arabia, this area around Yemen uh, today, to Jerusalem at the same time that these vessels were being laced uh, with vanilla. We have some inscriptions, actually, in Jerusalem detailing some of this trade. Further on, he writes this. This is Yigal Shalom now, uh, from 87 <clears throat> or 86, perhaps. These items and similar finds, such as the decorated uh, tridacne shells, sorry, example of which have also been found in the City of David ex- excavations. I believe these are shells that are only found in the Red Sea, indicating this transit from south to north. Point to the existence of at least commercial ties between Judah and South Arabia during Iron Age 2. <clears throat> so this really does back up what they're finding. They say that this vanilla probably came from uh, down here in this territory in the south, uh, in southern Arabia. And we have southern Arabian inscriptions found very close by, actually, uh, to where these vessels were found that were laced with vanilla. Um, the, then it says this further on. This trade system is also mentioned in the biblical text. So this is going back to the article. Uh, the recent one, um, especially in the second book of Kings and the book of Jeremiah. And then they quote Jeremiah 6, verse 20. <clears throat> Jeremiah 6, verse 20 says this, To what purpose comes there to me incense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? So this is just wonderful parallel of this trade network that is talking about this sweet incense um, this, I, I, they don't really, or this incense, it doesn't really tell us which translation they're using here, but this is, uh, the Hebrew word Lebona, uh, Leb, Lebona, and at this point, we believe it mentions something like frankincense or something like that, 
this is from just talking about what was coming up to Jerusalem. There is no evidence or no textual evidence of vanilla itself coming up that we know of. But we do have other spices being brought up from Southern Arabia. And so it makes sense that vanilla was another one of these that was being brought up. So we're just backing up what the Bible says, that there was trade from this area going to the north. And we're citing this scripture as they do, and, and kudos to them for putting this historical account in there of this trade network, um, which is probably how uh, this <clears throat> frankincense and, and then the vanilla got up there as well. This is how Philip King writes about that verse. Philip King is a uh, an author of this book, Jeremiah, an Archaeological Companion, a really wonderful book. If you're very interested in the book of Jeremiah and how archaeology backs up and supports it, um, just the wider context, I think it's worth worth getting, actually. Um, but obviously, there's been so much more that's been discovered since this book was written, I believe sometime in the early 90s. He quotes this scripture, Jeremiah 6, verse 20, saying this, Of what use to me, that is talking about God, is frankincense or lebuna that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices not uh, pleasing to me. Nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. And so here we have evidence of spices coming up. And they were being used uh, in, in the worship of God, some of them. And it just wasn't pleasing to God because their heart wasn't right when they offered it. But again, it, it does back up how this vanilla probably got there as well. Uh, is there anything else I want to read about this? Oh, one final thing. So a good job, I think, going to Jeremiah uh, to discuss this trade network. But then they say this in the paper, the story of the visit of, queen, of the Queen of Sheba to Jerusalem, bringing exotic gifts to Solomon, may reflect realities of the 7th century BCE. The incorporation of Judah into the Assyrian-led Arabian trade. Despite exegesis uh, complexities, these texts show that during the last days of the kingdom of Judah, its elite enjoyed fragrances and spices which were imported from afar, probably using them within the cultic as well as daily realms. The identity of these products unrecognized so far should be reevaluated in light of the finds described here. And so I think it's, it's um, this is just an interesting uh, tidbit that they put in here. They say, Jeremiah talks about it. But then when the book of Second Kings is being written, which it probably is being written during the time of Jeremiah, but nevertheless, they say that, well, this event that the Bible says took place during Solomon's time, this is a, uh, what did they say? A ref- it reflects a 7th century BCE uh, reality, meaning it didn't really happen. Uh, the way it says with the Queen of Sheba coming up to Jerusalem, since the Bible was written at this point around this time of Jeremiah, that that it must just be the person Jeremiah or whoever was writing this in Second Kings reflecting back, saying this is our experience, and so this is how it was back then. So it fits perfectly for them if they're going to say Solomon or David didn't exist, and they weren't involved in this massive trade network as well. They're going to say that the reality, um, that the biblical, the biblical story was made up of Solomon uh, bringing, accepting these gifts from the Queen of Sheba, which of course is, I don't know, has a place in the scientific study without proof uh, here. 
um, nevertheless, that's what they put in. Let's talk about the vessels themselves. The vessels themselves, the bottles, the jars that they were put in. I think at this point, I want to go to this again, back to Philip, <clears throat> Philip King's book, because he describes the very type of vessels that these were um, uh, in the context of wine, actually. <clears throat> he writes this, Jeremiah, borrowing images from winemaking, pronounced judgment against Moab, a hostile land east of the Dead Sea with a, repudi- with a reputation, repudiation, sorry, uh, sorry, with a reputation of quality of its wine. So Moab apparently had good wine, and Jeremiah, is, uh, on behalf of God, is going to make a pronunciation against them. Uh, this is Jeremiah 48 and verse 12. It says, Therefore the time is surely coming, says the Lord, when I shall send to him decanters to decant him and empty his vessels, or keli, and break, uh, or kli, and break his jars, nebel, in, pre- in pieces. So it's talking about a couple of uh, terms, rather generic, that can be used to describe a pottery vessel. He talks about this kli being um, something that could reverse uh, refer to metalware, but is probably just a small cup, like a kos or something like that, <clears throat> um, that that is used for that could be used for wine. But let's talk about this uh, verse, this word nebel, because this more accurately describes the type of vessels that were found in these excavations in Jerusalem that were crushed in the Babylonian destruction, holding the wine. Says this, the term nebel may describe a stringed instrument, a leather bottle, or a large storage jar. Apparently, the earthen vessel, nebel, was shaped like an animal skin bottle, whence the connection between the two. The musical instrument, too, may have been shaped like a skin bottle as well. So you'll see this in different translations in the Bible. When this word nebel is used, it'll be used as a stringed instrument, or sometimes they'll say a wine skin. And sometimes it'll refer to the, the storage jar itself. <clears throat> and this is the case uh, with these storage jars that were found in these excavations that were crushed with the vanilla on them and wine. The nebel is a storage jar, he writes, used especially for wine, oil, or grain, measuring 25 inches high, 16 inches in diameter. The larger version had four handles for carrying, whereas the smaller jar had two handles. In Jeremiah 13, 12 to 14, an independent unit expressing divine judgment on the nations is somewhat ambiguous. Using the symbol of wine jars, or this nebel, Jeremiah utters a self-evident proverb comparing the people of Judah to broken wine jars. And this is something that you don't find in any other report about this, and I don't know why they didn't necessarily include it. Uh, in their paper, but you have Jeremiah talking about broken wine jars, broken wine jars here in Jerusalem. That's what's going to happen to them, to the people themselves. He likens them to the 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 wine that's going to be spilled, I guess, and, and the destruction coming to Jerusalem and talks about uh, how they'll be broken, just like wine jars. And that's exactly what you find. You actually find the wine jars being broken. They were filled with wine. And then they're broken. We're going to get to that verse in a, those that passage in a second. But first, we'll go back to the study itself to talk about more about these jars. In addition to the wine markers, jar one seven zero four eight three, so one of the jars. That's the number of one of them. Contained biomarkers of olive oil. So there was olive oil in one of these jars, and then there was later wine in it. Obviously, not at the same time. 
They write, It seems, therefore, that at least some of the jars studied here, should read in their paper, uh, were used for storage at least twice, for olive oil and for wine intermittently. And that makes sense. It makes sense given that some of these jars had this rosette uh, stamp on the handle. You might recall we've talked about the Lamalic uh, stamps before that are on the handles of many storage jars beginning around the time of King Hezekiah, about 100 years before this. <clears throat> and it kind of, it seems like this was a something that Judah did. They put signs on the handle to, to, to show that it was part of the official uh, uh, official kingdom of Judah. This, this vessel, the storage vessel, belonged to the administration of Judah. You even find earlier uh, markings on the handles. And then you have the Lamalek inscriptions, or to the king inscriptions, uh, from around Hezekiah's time, perhaps going a little bit later. Then you find concentric circles on the handles as well. And you also find these beautiful rosettes on the handles, indicating that this was a vessel that was used in the service, perhaps, of the administration of Judah, the biblical administration of Judah. And so it makes sense then that these vessels are going to be repeatedly used, uh, perhaps for different things. And in this case, they did find <clears throat> one that was used, uh, well, twi- at least twice, for olive oil and for wine. Then they continue, the storage vessels were multi-purpose and not pre-designated for the storage of a single product, as well as is well attested. Jars bearing rosette-stamped handles began to be produced as early as circa 620. Then they begin to say something very interesting. Furthermore, specific measurements of the intensity of the magnetic field performed on both floor plaster segments that were heated in the destruction found in the collapse of Building 100s. This is the Gavati parking lot. They found floor uh, plastered segments that were really hot, got burnt down, Uh, during the destruction in 586, and they measured the intensity of the magnetic field inside the floor plaster. This is a new way of dating things. It's quite quite remarkable, and I don't understand it all completely. So they compared that with the jars, and this comparison, and the jars proved that the storage jars stamped with rosette impressions were manufactured several decades before the destruction. So they're saying that there's a different signature of uh, of the magnetic field between um, the pottery vessels that are ex- that have the rosette st- uh, stamp on them and the destruction that is evident uh, from 586. So comparing the two, they know um, that the jars themselves were at least it seems around thir- made at least 30 years before the destruction, and then when they were used, they were used all the way up to the destruction. In this case, holding wine at the destruction. Continuing, they say this means that the jars were kept in long, in use for a long period, probably reused for different purposes. This is an important addition to the study of the royal administration of Judah in the period when the jars were stamped from the late 8th century to the early 6th century BCE. So I think this is really cool, uh, really interesting. Just a way that they how technology and, and the sciences is developing so much that you can garner so much information. <clears throat> I mean... Or could any of this be done 30 years ago? Finding the different residues that are on here, finding that vanilla was 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 on uh, used inside wine, jazzing up the wine in ancient Judah, and then finding using the magnetic field that is kind of that is kind of set inside these materials to recognize that there was a delay of perhaps 20 years between one was made, and then and the destruction. Uh, this is amazing, amazing 
how, how far science is coming along. And what happens when you do that? And you put it against the biblical text. Uh, the biblical text becomes more alive, I think, more, more real, more, more uh, supported, especially, especially from this time, as there's so much detail in the biblical text and so much detail, again, related to this period, um, because this is the time when, as I said before, Jerusalem fell. So all the material remains are going to, most of them, 90% of them, relate to the time period of Jeremiah. So one other final element I think is is very interesting that you wouldn't have seen if you just read news reports about this discovery is the fact that these vessels were probably sealed. Now that makes sense. If you know anything about wine, you know that it needs to be sealed to prevent oxidation so that it doesn't com- continue fermenting and turn into vinegar and taste disgusting. If you're going to put vanilla in it, vanilla is very expensive, then you're going to make sure that it's sealed. How do you do that anciently? Well, they have some idea. Jar 170483 contained uh, alkalines of 23 to 29 carbon atoms and so on and so forth. I don't know what that means, but we'll go on and, and ex- they explain. These molecules occur, occur widely in many waxes of animal and vegetable sources, such as epicu- epicuticular wax and beeswax, and could be applied to vessels to the vessels as a sealant. The fact that the rosette jars were used for the storage of wine reinforces the need for sealing and or coating the vessels in order to prevent the oxidation and spoilage. A group of three stoppers found alongside the jars in structure 17049 provide another indication for actions taken in order to prevent the entrance of air. So they also found evidence perhaps of beeswax in these these vessels, which indicates that this could have been used as a a way of, of sealing it. Now, I've always wondered about this. You see the storage vessels, and you do find little, these little stoppers, these little ceramic, uh, made of pottery as well, the ceramic stoppers. And a thinking person is like, well, that might be good to keep out bugs, but it's not going to be good to keep out air. So what did they do? Well, it seems like now they've found a solution that perhaps these stoppers, and even the vessel on the inside, because pottery can be somewhat por- porous sometimes, um, was used to seal it. These were sealed. These were vessels that were sealed with wine inside. Else it would have to be used um, pretty much immediately or else it's going to spoil. So let's go back to the book of Jeremiah. I want to look at these verses that directly relate to these type of vessels being uh, filled with wine at Jeremiah's time. A direct parallel to what they've found in the archaeological excavations here, two of them, in the ancient city of David. Now let's quote this. This is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 12 to 15. It says this, Moreover, you shall speak unto them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every bottle, and you might see wineskin in your translation, but it is it is it, it does not mean uh, wineskin in this case it is the nebel vessel this large storage jar the exact type that they found here in the city of david thus says the lord the god of israel every bottle of jar or every bottle of vessel is filled with wine is every bottle filled with wine that's what you shall say to them and when they shall say to you do we not know that every bottle is filled with wine Every one of these, we know that, Jeremiah. Every one of these vessels is filled with wine. This is, this is right, 
during the time of Josiah, all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's residents are coming to Jeremiah and saying, you're right. These vessels are all filled with wine. The very vessels that we know. Now, they say that finding these vessels that had wine in them, it's not too surprising. Indeed, it isn't. I mean, the, the additive of the vanilla is, is um, definitely surprising. But here you have a direct parallel to the Bible saying that these vessels are definitely filled with wine. But what does God say about it then? When they say that they agree, and duh, Jeremiah, they, we know they are filled with wine, then you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And so just as those vessels of wine are, are, are filled, with, filled with wine, that's a type, really, of the sins that are, that are there in Judah. And God says, I will dash them one against another, fathers, even fathers the sons together. I will not pity, I will not spare, nor have compassion, that I should not destroy them. Hear you and give you ear, and be not proud. And later on in verse 25, it says, you have forgotten me. And so, I mean, when we see the destruction of these vessels that were filled with wine, we see kind of this type of what would happen to the people themselves. Now, as we've gone through in other um, programs, this wasn't the fate of everyone uh, in Judah or Jerusalem. <clears throat> this was the fate of those that were extremely stubborn, that would stay in the country, that stay in the city, that would refuse to surrender. God had told the people through the prophet Jeremiah all the way back um, uh, 604, 605 BC, 20 years before Jerusalem fell, basically, that if you'd surrender, you are going to go into captivity. You will go into captivity. And this is a punishment. This is a punishment for you for not obeying my laws. But while you're there in captivity, and you can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29, while you're there in captivity, you build up your houses, you have sons, you have daughters, uh, you can you know, thrive there. You seek me, repent when you're there in Babylon in your captivity, and I will bring you back. After 70 years, I will bring you back. And there are plenty of people um, that responded. Well, there are plenty of people that responded to that, it seems. And they did go into captivity. They are called the, the ripe figs in the book of Jeremiah. Now, there were some, the unripe figs among Zedekiah and others, and even those that tried to put Jeremiah in prison later on, that, that, that God was saying was uh, the only way that these people are ever going to not be proud and not be stubborn is if they go through a destruction typified by these wine vessels. And so that was those are the people that were involved in the, the a year and a half siege in Jerusalem. Ezekiel, um, Jehoiakim, his mother, some others, they were taken out already. They didn't experience the worst of it. They didn't experience this dash them one against another, even the fathers against the sons together. They didn't because uh, it seems like they were willing to allowed some of Jeremiah's message to actually reach them. But here we have, um, so Jeremiah isn't all negative at all. I mean, Jeremiah even bought the, the plot of land in Anathoth, Anathoth uh, right there 
at the last while he was in prison, right as Jerusalem was being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar in 587-586. He goes and he purchases this land to show that God is going to come back to this land. I'm buying this land because we're going to have a future in this country. We're going to have a future in this land. We shall return after we respond to God. And this would happen during, you know, Zerubbabel's time. And they'd come back and build up, build up Jerusalem and the province of Yehud at the time of Judah. Um, and so Jeremiah isn't all doom. I mean, Jeremiah pronounced doom on, on those that wouldn't change. And this is, again, what we see here with this, this, um, this passage of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 12 to 13, 12 to 14, 12 to 15, in there, where he describes every bottle or storage jar being filled with wine, and the result of that, they're going to be broken in pieces. And that's what you find in the destruction layer, in the very destruction layer in 586, Two excavation sites, and they don't just find broken down vessels. They find broken down vessels that contain wine and even contained vanilla, which speaks to the um, the richness of Judean society, even at the time that uh, Jerusalem fell. So this is just a, another very interesting discovery. I think you could look at it and just say, well, it's not that important. <clears throat> and perhaps it's not on the broad scheme of things. However, it's extremely interesting to see how the scientific field of archaeology and other hard sciences being related to archaeology as well um, is really developing at lightning pace. I mean, what information is 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 going to be kept from us? I, I everything. I mean, you look at they've, they've studied the magnetism of these vessels. We know exactly what they were made from, when they were made, uh, what was in them, um, and it's kind of just completing a picture. And the picture that it shows really does go along so well with the Bible. <clears throat> okay, thank you very much for listening to today's program. Again, if you haven't received and you're not on our mailing list, um, this is an email that will come out a couple of times a week when we have new archaeological historical uh, articles as relates to the Bible. Uh, you can do that by going to our website, armstronginstitute.org, and you'll find there, a. if you scroll down, you can sign up for our brief email. You can also find the uh, magazine, Let the Stone Speak, that we put out six times a year. This is a magazine that's absolutely free. And it'll always be free. Uh, you can sign up for that also on the website. You can also write me an email to get your copy of that with your address, of course. Uh, the email address is letters at armstronginstitute.org. And I'll make sure you can receive your first free copy of that and a subscription for the next year for free. And then you'll just have to renew every year. Let us know you still want it or you can cancel it and we will not follow up with you and definitely will never ask for any money from you as well. Again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.